artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, everyone. Welcome to part two of the interview with Dr. Ryan Darcy. I said in the last episode that we met when we were both speaking at TEDx Bear Creek Park in British Columbia. Ryan is a neuroscientist, the president and chief scientific officer of Health Tech Connects. If you go to their website, you'll see the headline, How's Your Brain Doing Today? Which sums up Ryan's mission. How is your brain doing today? How would you know? How would you know whether it's doing better than yesterday or as well as it should? He invented the term brain vital signs to come up with a way of measuring the health of the brain the way we measure someone's blood pressure or temperature or pulse. Ryan is also a tenured professor at Simon Fraser University in computer science and engineering science and at the University of British Columbia in the Jovad Mavagian Center for Brain Health. If you look at the show notes, you'll see a picture of him next to a magnetic resonance imaging machine. He routinely looks inside brains, sometimes with the lid taken off, but he prefers to do it without opening people's heads, hence the MRI. In fact, he's got some definite opinions about how we should be doing brain-machine interfaces without the head-opening step, and you'll hear more about that in this episode. I really like talking with people who are passionate about what they do, and Ryan is incredibly passionate about brains. He is working for a revolution in how we understand our brains and how we fix them when they're broken. I think you'll see some stunning advances from Ryan and others in that field in the next few years. You see, the pandemic crisis that we're in is focusing a massive proportion of the world's scientific firepower on a single problem right now, and that's going to accelerate our capabilities in medicine much faster than we are used to. That kind of attention won't just advance virology or microbiology, it'll spill out into neighboring fields. Mostly medicine, but with all the computing resources being used in that effort, there will be a fusion that overlaps into computer science. That'll put us right where Ryan is, the cutting edge of neuroscience, figuring out how this lump of jelly on top of our necks does so much and how to keep it at peak performance. Maybe we'll figure out how to use computers as brain prosthetics to assist us. The way we use our smartphones now, only with direct brain connections, so we won't be limited by how fast we can type or listen or speak, but only by how fast we can think. Who couldn't use that? I, for one, could use some help in the face recognition department. It's very hard for me to remember both the name and face of someone new. Oftentimes I come away from an encounter realizing that I've remembered their face, but not their name, or vice versa. And of course, I'm doing what I can to improve that with what I've got now, but... Wow, wouldn't it make a difference if I had some help from a computer which is very good at remembering things? That could fill in the gaps? See someone, and it recognizes them and reminds me who they are and where we met? How about you? Could you use something like that? 
what else would you use it for? The headline this week was that researchers at the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology were able to use an EEG to monitor the brainwaves of someone who was watching a video, and from the brainwaves alone, use an AI to reconstruct, blurry, but recognizable frames of that video. That's huge. We can develop that technique to help people who have a stroke or are paralyzed so they can control devices like exoskeletons or wheelchairs. Yeah, you can go in the other direction with this too and think about the negative implications of being able to tell what someone is thinking. That's one of the disruptive effects of AI that we'll need to grapple with in the years to come. It's not too soon to start thinking about how to deal with those. But to get better brain-machine interfaces, we have to better understand the human brain. To learn more about that, here's part two of the interview with Ryan Darcy. I've long been struck by how our concept of the mind has always been whatever our most advanced technology was at the time. So it goes back to like engines in the Victorian era and then telephone exchanges, telegraphs, and now computers and neural networks in computers. It strikes me we have a few more generations of, of models to go. Our computers are architected along what's called a von Neumann architecture where you've got a, a central processing unit that knows how to execute instructions and then you've got memory where it finds the instructions and operates on data. And then you've got a place where you input questions and it outputs answers. The human brain doesn't look like that. It seems to look homogenous. Uh, I'm sure that's a, a naive in interpretation. What sort of structure is there of the brain and, and what sort of models does it suggest of its cognitive ability? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Around the time when the, the real, I think, global realization of this came around the time when um, IBM created the computer Watson and beat the Jeopardy champions. And, and at those times, uh, most card-carrying neuroscientists like myself got entered into debates with computer scientists about <laughs> the concept of, will computers outperform the human brain? And no one really, I think, knows the answer. Time will tell as to what that will unfold. But it is in interesting to do a bit of a compare and contrast. The first thing to, to recognize is that I think we almost always get the, the comparison the wrong way around. So we try to, and a lot of people try to map the brain with respect to the computer. But in AI with neural networking, the advances in deep neural network learning really did get led by modeling after the brain, modeling a computer after the brain. And so like the brain, uh, computers have uh, central processors, and then they have distributed systems in which they transact information. And that's actually similar to how our, our neurons are structured. We have uh, areas and regions that do some uh, central processing, and then we have distributed networks in which that information can be not only sent, but represented. And so in many senses, a neural network and an AI neural network are starting to converge. And the AI neural network uh, is starting to learn from what evolution has put in place between our ears. And so I think that's really exciting. And it's definitely greatly impacting 
our world on a daily basis, whether or not you see it in terms of autonomous driving or the ways that we can actually analyze the complex uh, signals and, and information that comes from the brain and make sense of it. Um, we are seeing those benefits in, in AI for sure. Talking about how to make sense of those signals, read something here that I copied an article that says, Joseph Macon led a group from the University of California, San Francisco to render a person's neural signals as English text while the person read a sentence aloud. Sometimes it produced gibberish. For instance, it translated brainwaves representing the woman is holding a broom into the little is giggling, giggling. But much of its output was very close to the spoken words. The ladder was used to rescue the cat and the man came out as which ladder will be used to rescue the cat and the man. So here's something that's being used to try and turn our thoughts into uh, rendered language. And it really prompts the question for me of what is a thought? Well, thanks for asking the easy questions. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they pay you the big Uh, bucks. Yeah, I think, first of all, that's an excellent example of what we call um, brain-computer interfaces or brain-machine interfaces, or B- um, BCI or BM- BMI, more BCI. Um, and certainly anyone who watches uh, uh, things like Tesla and SpaceX knows about Neuralink with uh, people like Elon Musk, and those are attempts that are very much focused on integrating our, our computers and our AI with our brain activity. And that's a very good demonstration of the potential there's going to be a whole lot between the potential that you can see in the laboratory and, and practical interfaces. And it's, it's also going to not, sometimes it'll be a bit of an apples and oranges comparison because computers are fundamentally different in our, from our brains in, in multiple ways. And one way is that um, our brains are, are interestingly this paradox between localized and distributed at the very same time. So in that experiment to read that slice of a thought, um, they, they were going into a specific area of the brain, but that specific area did not allow them to see kind of the entire distributed neural network to integrate that particular sentiment with other thoughts. So I think that demonstrates that we've got a long way to go. Um, it's, they're really interesting steps forward for sure, but we, we have quite a lot of um, catch up uh, with Mother Nature, to be able to understand how that then gets represented in a way that you and I would think of as a thought. And just to give you one recent science example from our group along those lines, when you look at brainwaves, and I mentioned earlier that it's almost the 100th anniversary of when uh, brainwaves were first reported in 1924, for the longest time, we would try to access these small brainwave signals uh, and would move the blink activity. Every time you blink, you, you create electrical activity that was an artifact. And so what happens is all the field was focused on this idea that these blinks were artifacts and bad, and we had to get to the small. But it turns out that when you blink, in terms of a thought, it's like a hidden window into your conscious mind because there's brain activity buried within that blink that relates to you environmentally scanning and becoming aware of your environment uh, or, or re-registering your environment. So that's a thought, right? But it's not a thought that we ever thought uh, uh, over a hundred years worth of research. 
So I think it's, it's very difficult and very interesting to continue to look at what is a thought, what is consciousness. And we are still really in the infancy of, of us understanding that. And that's another reason why our understanding of our brains is just driving our, our AI. And I think it'll be interesting to see as AI climbs up if that helps us to better understand our brains. But right now, we all have to recognize that our understanding of our brains is so crude that we are, we got a long ways to go yet. Mm. Yes, as you said, one of the harder questions, lay people tend to think of thoughts as being these sentences bouncing around inside our brains. And science fiction fans who read about telepathy think about that the same way as well. When we see uh, fictional shows about that happening, they represented it as words appearing in someone's head. But the Reality must be much more complicated than that. For instance, I can tell when I'm speaking that the words I'm going to say are showing up in my brain ahead of my mouth. Like I know this sentence a half a second into it, and then my brain is just unbuffering everything else that I'm going to say. And sometimes the problem is that it gets three sentences ahead of me and then goes back and tries to edit the one that's on its way out of my mouth. So there's there's something going on there that is not necessarily connected to language or at least isn't happening at the same speed as, as vocalization. And do we have any idea of, of what those thoughts are? Can they be deconstructed without having to come out as vocalized words? There's been some interesting research that's been able to analyze brain imaging data to be able to understand and, and pull out the, the equivalent of what was someone's thinking pattern. But again, if you think in the way of layers and we understand that we don't know how many layers of complexity are on the system, that was the very first layer. And a couple of, of straightforward examples would prove to you that from a thought experiment point of view, that this is not just, this is certainly a much deeper and complex and, and intricate system than, than that. Because, for example, almost, I think all of us have uh, experienced the concept of hearing music that pulls up a memory. And that memory then pulls up a, a thought, right? Uh, the same is true from a, a smelling something that pulls up a memory and, and brings time. And then that brings a thought that creates uh, something that you may or may not vocalize or uh, do a volitional action over. So in those cases, you know right away that there are multiple ways by which our neural systems can bring thinking uh, to bear, be it uh, conscious, unconscious, automated, um, or by control. And so it, it's really going to continue to be the case that with a system as complex as the human brain, we, we're not going to be out of jobs quite yet in terms of uh, computer AI uh, telling us how it all works. <laughs> Good. Going back to one of the first times that we met, you gave me some feedback on an early version of my talk where I started out by saying that the ability to perceive our motion through time was uniquely human. And you corrected me and said, actually, there are animals that can do that as well. So I took that out because it wasn't necessary for the talk. Now, 
some animals even have more neurons than a human brain, although they still don't have some of the capabilities that we have. But are there things about different animal brains that are optimized in ways that ours aren't that provide research possibilities? Oh, uh, most certainly. Uh, the question is, what, what, is the, what is the research possibility? There's been, uh, historically, the bulk of how we've understood the brain has been through studying um, uh, non-human brains from uh, the lowest level to the highest level. And it's absolutely the case that um, I think we are a little bit anthropocentric in our perspectives of the brain. I've often had to remind people that humans are animals. We sometimes like to categorize humans as separate to animals. But every brain is an information processor. And it's uh, from a practical functional purpose. It's a supercomputer wired to do specific uh, job, which is to survive and evolve and follow the theories of natural selection in whatever environment and, and situation and context it finds. So the neural systems are always being optimized for that. And you would see, for example, just as one, one example, in, in non-human primates, their somatosensory cortex in terms of their sensory and their touch is much greater and larger. Um, raccoons, the same. So their, their brains have been rewired for abilities that allow them to, to survive and, and to thrive. And, and the same is true in, in uh, we think that what's uniquely human is uh, largely related to two things, actually. It's um, number one, uh, we have opposable thumbs, which has allowed us to, to uh, engage our frontal lobes, our executive functioning, to start to use tools uh, to bring on the industrial age and the ages of technology and innovation. And number two, um, and they're not in rank order, uh, we created communication systems that support uh, the concept of language as we know it, uh, which we haven't been able to necessarily discover yet that other animals have, have it in quite the same way. That's not to say by any stretch of the imagination that there aren't other animals that have language systems that operate as they know it, and we just simply can't perceive them because of our perspective. But nonetheless, those have created um, over evolution uh, a, a reorganization in terms of priorities and structure in our brains so that we can use the environment that way. And that, that is where we're all animals are, like, are fundamentally like. We're all built from neurons, uh, fundamental neural circuits, and we've just specialized them for our unique uh, needs. Mm. And then there are the role of feelings in people. And there's been great debate and controversy in, in scientific circles over what other uh, animals experience feelings. But I, I do remember learning not that long ago, actually, uh, after speaking so often about sentient life, thinking that that meant self-aware conscious thinking that actually no it's that's not what it means sentient means feeling uh, we are homo sapiens and it's sapient life that is is thinking but sentient means that it's that it's feeling and there's no debate about how much human beings can feel and and have emotions what sort of role do those play in our intelligence well I think there's an entire discipline of social neuroscience, which has really been through, particularly through brain imaging advances, been able to start to do some really interesting experiments in terms of 
us the human equation and watch your scientific america brain articles and you'll see these really uh, there's a host of them and i i there's so many it's difficult to give uh, sort of one example but one example that i i always uh, that comes to mind for sure would be this concept of meta scanning that you can scan two brains at the same time and show that their activity, let's say uh, between a mother and a baby or between people who have uh, strong feelings for one another, that their, their brain waves actually synchronize uniquely. So, so we do know that um, in, there's a strong biological basis for these things. And what's, what's interesting to me is this, where, this kind of pulls us full circle back to the whole concept of AI computers and, and that sort of thing. Because if you look at how we came and evolved as a human species and then you make a comparison of how did we how did we evolve computers they're fundamentally different on on a couple of key constructs and dimensions and one would be certainly uh the the concept that we evolved to have feelings and have sentience whereas computers necessarily that wasn't a practical um engineering requirement uh but the other is actually you can train if you if you think I wanted to let's ask let's play a simple experiment We're going to train a computer the most powerful analytic processor. We have uh, uh, Supercomputing and quantum computing added in and everything you can do that's on the planet And you're going to put it against the human brain and pattern recognition And you're going to show it you're going to train it a bunch of animals, right? So you're going to show it pictures and pictures and pictures and then you're going to demonstrate that this um, your computer your AI could perform better in terms of reaction time in processing new um, patterns of, of new animals. But what we forget to ask is the context. The human brain pattern recognizer, if some of those pictures were dangerous animals in the environment, like a snake, the, the rate of the, the human brain will fundamentally analyze that situation differently than the computer, right? So, so the computer was never built to be have an evolutionary fear and so it was fundamentally wired and designed in a different way so its ai will as close as it may get will still operate on different operational parameters than you necessarily would to survive in the woods and not step on a poisonous snake so i think we still have to reconcile a lot of those fundamental first principle issues uh, when it comes to this and certainly to just bring it back um, human feelings um, with respect to sentience is is right up there as a first principle. Mm. I'm continually struck by how much our cognitive systems are optimized for our survival, even to the extent that they then reveal that there are other things that are not so important to survival that they get wrong. Optical illusions is what I'm thinking about, mm -hmm. for instance, there. Anything that's uh, based on an abstract uh, image can become an optical illusion because our brains have only got so much optical processing power, but it's all optimized for our survival in the real world. You mentioned Neuralink earlier, and a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with Elon Musk's rationale for starting a brain-computer interface company, which is that he foresees there being a time in the future when AI evolves rapidly and would get bored communicating with us at the speed at which we talk or read and being able to communicate with it at the speed at which we think could buy us some important time for being able to convince it of what's important to us. What are your thoughts about the current progress in Neuralink and other 
companies and like say the human connectome project of the current state of brain computer interfaces and where do you think that industry is going to go in the next five to ten years uh yeah excellent topic great great um i always love speaking about this if I look forward to the time I should ever be able to have a one-on-one chat with Elon Musk about uh, this is the first time I've seen him get his first principles wrong. And, uh, and I, so I think there will be some revisions along the way. And I'm not, I'm not critical of what Neuralink is doing, but the, there are two first principles that I see that were not correct um, from my perspective. The first I've already mentioned, which is that uh, the relationship of AI evolves under different operational parameters and circumstances than human brains. So assumptions that assume that AI will uh, get bored of human brains uh, may need to be rechecked on that front. But the other uh, area of first principles is that if AI is evolving at the rate it does, then it will likely be, Neuralink took an invasive uh, approach where they uh, actually create a, a open your skull and get the sensors in uh, to a specific area of your brain. And the reality would be that the better bet is that um, a non-invasive BCI will benefit fast and quickly in terms of signal processing advances and AI. And so that, of course, will have the immediate advantage of being able to look at both localized and distributed neural activity in your brain. And so I would, I would definitely put the bets on, on those plays. And there are some of those plays out in the world that are moving forward and have similarly uh, sort of focused on that priority. Uh, in terms of where I think we will go, I, I think that the, the grand idea that uh, computers and human brains can communicate more efficiently is an awesome one. And particularly, it will be demonstrated in the practical benefits. Primarily, I, I would imagine things like performance-based human, uh, human machine interfacing um, when you're flying as pilots or driving cars um, or astronauts. I think that that's historically been where the practical applications have, been, have started first, and it likely will continue to be there. Also, robotic uh, surgeries, as, as an example, and assistive, assistive medical uh, technologies that interface with the human. I think in practical demonstrations like that is where we'll see it first. Uh, Well, we already have, and we'll see it uh, continue to expand uh, more quickly. So if we turn AI around to IA, we have intelligence augmentation. I, for one, would like to have a brain-computer interface to Google so I can think a query and get the answer a lot faster without needing a device in my pocket. How far are we away from having something like that? I would say we've seen lots of advances in, in, uh, and we're learning to communicate. And rather than to recreate an, an imperfect interface, use interfaces that have been around for a long time and, and jump on those. So I think uh, the smartphone is a perfect example. I, I can't spell in a spelling contest anymore, but I can spell with my fingers. And so I've rewired my brain to, as, as an interface to be able to communicate more efficiently that way. Um, same with voice recognition and, uh, and speech-to-text and text-to-speech. I think those advances have used AI largely and are creating why you have your Alexas and your Google Homes. So I think you'll probably still see that they'll be coming in on established um, channels into our brains rather than necessarily uh, uh, that you'll be plugging yourself into something and then just seamlessly be able to find something faster on the Internet. I would, um, If I was a betting person, I would 
I wouldn't say that's not going to happen, but the way that it happens will not look like what we think it, 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 uh, at the beginning. It'll be a very different implementation. Something like the next iteration of Google Glasses that, uh, that we speak to and which projects images onto Iredna, perhaps? I, I kind of think this is where AI is going to is going to surprise us all by pulling in a whole lot of data. So whether or not it's Google Glasses, it's looking at eye blinks, it's uh, recording brain waves. Uh, basically, we're getting to a place where we can uh, take all that complex information and throw it into uh, AI and machine learning and extract value out of it. So I think it'll probably be a multimodal uh, sort of phenomenon. Hmm. Well, this has been fascinating. I know, as I've told you before, uh, that I could go on with this conversation for hours and maybe we'll have the chance to do that again uh, another time. But uh, our listeners and uh, human beings have only so much attention span. What's obvious to me from the moment we met is the passion and drive that you have for making a difference here. What would you like your mark on the world to be? How would you want others to describe your legacy when all is said and done? <laughs> that's, that's simple. We're, our goal is to positively impact a billion or more brains uh, and to uh, ensure that we can unleash uh, the brain potential of humanity to solve our scariest problems. So that's, our, that's what we're trying to do. Wow, that is a great way to, to sum that up. If people want to learn more about what you do or have something that they need to ask you or let you know, how should they get in touch or find out more? Oh, for sure. Reach out to me. There's um, a number of ways you can, you can reach out to me on, over the internet. And I'm always happy to uh, chat with people that are interested in what we're up to. And, and just like our, our connection, I think um, we as I'll end with this. We could calculate that the potential for brain power should not just exist within our skulls, but it should actually be that you've modulated my neural circuits and I've modulated yours. So, so for anyone who's interested, uh, reach out and we'll uh, rewire each other's brains. Wow. Well, we've done a lot of rewiring in this session. I'd like to thank you so much for coming on this show. That's the end of the interview. Sorry for the rather abrupt ending there. I like how as much as we were talking about what could happen in the far future, or certainly not next year, we kept it grounded in also things that are going on right now. And one of the things that Ryan is doing is working to get treatments and measurements of the brain into the hands of the doctors that you go and see for a checkup or for something more serious. It's long been a frustration of mine that I keep reading about medical advances, new discoveries, new inventions, new treatments, and they don't seem to show up. I go into my doctor's office and they're still using the same equipment as 50 years ago for the most part. Maybe they're taking my temperature with something in my ear instead of under my tongue, but it's still the same spigmomanometer that measures blood pressure. They're still using a stethoscope. This is not my idea of the kind of progress that we should be making. As I said earlier, I think that this crisis will precipitate a lot of advances in medicine, and so I'm hopeful that we'll see some of that show up in the doctor's office by the end of it.
But Ryan particularly feels that kind of frustration acutely with respect to the health and measurements of brains. And he's working on how that technology could be pushed out again to your doctor's office. So maybe not far in the future, you'll go into your doctor and he'll scan your brain while you're there. And you can have Ryan to thank for that. By the way, in the interview when we were talking about animals that have more neurons than humans, I looked that up. The elephant has about three times as many neurons in its brain. According to Wikipedia, if you count a different way, which is the number of neurons or equivalents in the whole nervous system, then some whales beat us. Okay, a headline item before we leave. I'd like to draw your attention to a recent publication with this title, Using sinusoidally modulated noise as a surrogate for slow-wave sleep to accomplish stable unsupervised dictionary learning in a spike-based sparse coding model. Wow. Allow me to translate. This paper that was presented at the CVPR Women in Computer Vision workshop in Seattle in June was about optimizing the performance of so-called neuromorphic processes chips that have been designed from scratch to emulate the human brain structure. So we're still on topic for this episode. The really interesting thing about this is that they said that those chips need the equivalent of sleep in order to stay healthy. Now this paper was published by and the work done at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And here's a quote from their computer scientist, Yijing Watkins. We were fascinated by the prospect of training a neuromorphic processor in a manner analogous to how humans and other biological systems learn from their environment during childhood development. Now, she and her research team found that the network simulations became unstable after continuous periods of unsupervised learning. When they exposed the networks to states that are analogous to the waves that living brains experience during sleep, Stability was restored. Quote, it was as though we were giving the neural networks the equivalent of a good night's rest, according to Watkins. Does this mean that there's more convergence between artificial intelligence and human neural structures coming up? I think that's a good bet. In next week's episode, my guest will be Richard Foster Fletcher, calling in from the United Kingdom, now, he hosts the Boundless podcast, which I was the very first guest on, so turnabout is fair play. He's a keynote speaker on the topic of the Artificial Intelligence Roadmap to 2030. He's the founder of NeuralPath.io and the chair of the Milton Keynes Artificial Intelligence Group. I've participated in his podcast and on several of the events that he's hosted, and He's really a thoughtful and compassionate futurist with an expansive view of where we're going that's driven him to take on this futurist role. So one futurist to another, that's what the interview next week will be on the next episode of AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net.
That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.